everybody. Welcome into the I Want to Know podcast. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and I'm the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. I am so excited for today's show. My guest is none other than Jeff Bearden. But first, let me thank you guys for just a moment for spreading the word. You've been telling your friends, you've been downloading the shows and spreading the links and liking and sharing all that stuff, and I really do appreciate it. I say it a lot and I say it often, but I, I do mean it. So thank you guys for spreading the word about the podcast. There's no advertising budget here, just you guys. Anyways, on to Jeff. This is why I'm so excited. Jeff is a retired professional wrestler, came up in the days of when wrestling was good, trained with Dick Murdoch, rode with some of the best in the business. Worked with Dusty Rhodes, the Four Horsemen, Abdullah the Butcher. If you know that name, you're a true wrestling fan. In fact, if you know the Four Horsemen and Dusty Rhodes, bebe, you're a really big wrestling fan, and I support that. If you know me, you know I'm a huge wrestling mark. Anyways, we talk about so much stuff that I had to split this up into two episodes. Nobody wants a big file size like that, I understand. You download it on your phone, and data is tough. In this episode, we cover everything from him getting started in the business, wrestling overseas, different fans across the ponds, training with some of the biggest names in wrestling history. Spoiler alert, it's the Funks. Oh, he's been stabbed five times going to or coming from the ring. It's insane. Jeff is now a motivational speaker and speaks out against bullying, especially with kids. In fact, he's speaking on January 2nd at the uh, Orleans Casino in Las Vegas. He is a keynote speaker at the Unstuck 2016 Happiness Conference. If you guys are in Vegas, you want to go check Jeff out, head over to the Orleans on January 2nd. You can find him on Facebook, facebook.com slash the get back on your feet guy. Also, jeffbearden.com, B-E-A-R-D-E-N. JeffBearden.com. He's on Twitter at JWB at large. But this first part, it's all wrestling, baby. So let's get right into it. All right, everybody. So I'm being joined on Skype by the big seven-footer himself. You may know him as Giant Warrior or Tiger Steel. His real name now, Jeff Bearden. Jeff, how's it going? Good. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Oh, no problem. Uh, for those of you that listen to both my shows, this one and the Charity Strike, you may have heard Jeff on that one. Tons of fun. I figured, what better than to have him back on this one? We can talk a little longer. Uh, for those that know me, know I'm a huge, huge wrestling mark. So is uh, Mike from the other show. And and talking to Jeff the first time was just so much fun. So uh, I just I just want to talk about wrestling when it was good. You know, it's a little bit different, I guess, with with me because I was never with any of the you know the giant offices and stuff here in the states and stuff. But I mean, I managed a career overseas. So I had a little bit of a different perspective about professional wrestling than what a lot of people over here understand. Yeah, and I think a lot of people over here don't understand how huge wrestling is overseas, especially like Japan and such. Oh, it's it's massive. I mean, uh, you know, Barbarian and I were the main event in Bombay, India back in the 90s. And I mean, we drew 75,000 plus and they couldn't keep up with how many people were actually in the in the venue because they broke down a wall trying to get into the stadium <laughs> holy crap so i mean a lot of people came in through that opening in the wall so i mean they real that was just seventy five thousand that was paying that's insane and that's and that's what it's like overseas i mean here obviously you would never have somebody knocking down walls at wrestlemania to get in but like right across seas the fans are insane in a good ways mostly and oh it, like, it really is and i think it was one reason why i enjoyed working overseas so much is because 
you know, you would talk to a fan and they say, well, you know, the American wrestling that we see on television is fake, but the local stuff is real. <laughs> and they still believed in their local stuff. And that made it a lot more fun because, you know, I started wrestling in, I think, 87. And, you know, back then, so we protected the business at all costs. Sure. And that was that was a lot more fun for me instead of being able to get the fans as wound up as we were able to get them at that time. You know, it's a lot different than what it is today. You know, you go to a WWE show and you watch the guys walking around with scripts, you know, on, on how their match is supposed to go. You know, and our stuff was all ad lib back then. We basically knew a, a beginning and an ending. And, you know, everything else in the middle was, was pretty well fair game. You had to kind of feel with what the what the crowd was wanting that night. And the heels and faces weren't even allowed to be in the same locker room. No, we were on different sides of the building. I mean, there wasn't even a way to sneak to each other. You know, uh, you know, places like Puerto Rico and a lot of stuff, you know, the referee was kind of the go-between. And a lot of times, um, you know, I was probably one of the few American baby faces that went into Puerto Rico for for two years. And, I mean, I, ne- I, was, I stayed a baby face the whole time. So, but, I mean, the referee, you know, a lot of times our booker and stuff was one of the heels. So the messages would come back about our matches on a tape recorder. Oh, geez. And that was how we, you know, there was no discussing anything. It's kind of like, okay, here's what you're doing. And that's what we went. If we had a question, we told the ref, and the ref kind of went back and then came back to us. But, yeah, I mean, we weren't able to sit through and walk through matches. I mean, you watch some of these, um, you know, some of these indie shows and stuff now, and you start watching these kids. And, I mean, it's like watching a little choreographed dress in the dressing room, watching them trying to walk through, you know, moves. Right. It's like, really? And if you want to really scare a a young kid wrestling, and they're like, well, what do you want to do tonight? (laughs) It's like, we'll call it in the ring. Oh, God. And you just look at, they look at deer in the headlights and stuff. I mean, it's just sheer panic crosses their face about, but I don't know how to do that. Yeah, but I do, so just shut up and listen. <laughs> just do what I tell you. So, yeah, it, it's really a different thing now and stuff than what it was, you know, the 80s and 90s, before the business really got exposed in the mid-90s. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't here when it got exposed because I was living in South Africa at the time and, and helping run the wrestling office over there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I came back to the States, and that was the funny thing, nobody had really told me. <laughs> so I, I talked to somebody about something. A fan had come up and talked, approached me at a store one day. And, you know, my response to anything is like, but don't you know that they've told everybody wrestling's not real? Wait a minute. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I was still protecting the business like I'd been doing for the past 12 years, you yeah, know, in South Africa. Getting Af- ready to punch a guy. Yeah, South Africa, you protected it at all costs, still. Right. You know, like we did back in the 80s. So, yeah, it was really it was really bizarre to come back to the States after being gone for a little over five years and then find out stuff, you know, the business had all changed so much. Yeah, I mean, even, I think it was the mid to late 80s, Hulk Hogan, who was in WWF at the time, Punched a reporter for calling wrestling fake. It was like oh, I, huge I headline. The whole big thing about David Schultz slapping the the reporter and stuff and busting his eardrum. Oh, that's right. That too. You know that was the big one I remember happening. And then I, I remember when um, I think it was Eddie Mansfield. 
you know, exposed the business on 2020 or something. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of blackballed from the business because of it. We should be. You know, so I mean, it was, you know, it was a completely different game back then than what it is now. And I, you know, I listened to, you know, you talk to some of these young guys. And one of the things that I was kind of glad to retire in some ways is I, I don't like the product today. And I, I don't, you know, there's, there's more people inside the ring that should be on the other side of the ropes, you know, still. Yeah, well, it, it's a lot of promos these days. Well, I mean, and you watch stuff on Facebook, and guys are cutting promos on each other on Facebook, right. but then they're congratula- congratulating each other the next day as about the match they had the night before. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what? It's like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? One of the things that throws me off, you know, Stone Cold has his podcast, which I listen to somewhat regularly. And I love hearing him talk to the old guys who are retired. They talk about their road stories and coming up and, and all the dues they paid. I love that. But it thro- it's still thro- even though I know, you know the business is fake and it's all a work, I, I still get thrown off when he has these guys call in. Or Jericho does it on his podcast, too. They're in the middle of a heel you know, program with someone. And they call in, and they're on the show, and they're just talking normal. It's, I, I know that makes me sound like a total wrestling nerd, but it's like, hey, man, you're in the middle of this like super intense program on TV. Why are you calling in and being the super nice guy? Yeah, it's well, you know, and I think part of it, too, is that a lot of these guys don't really want to be those strong heels like we used to have, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, when Brody was a heel and Abdullah and the Sheik and yeah. the Sheep Herders before, you know, their their whole thing got messed up with WWE. I mean, those guys and stuff were just vicious heels. And it didn't matter where they were. They lived their gimmicks. And, and and that was just the way it stays. And it's like today, nobody really wants to be that heel. You know, they want to they want to be in that gray area where they want to be a heel, but they want the fans to like them at the same time. Right. It feels like everyone's a tweener. Yeah. It, there's, there's the whole business is a tweener. I mean, yeah. I can't really think of very many people that are just a sheer heel. I mean, Cena's, you know, pretty well a sheer baby face, even though he's booed by everybody. Right. I mean, he's still strictly a baby face since he made his turn years ago. Yeah, no one's going to top him in the t-shirt sales either. Oh, no. And that's, you know, everybody keeps saying they need to turn Cena heel and stuff, but they'll, they can't. They can't afford to. They'll, they'll lose so much merchandising money and stuff by him turning heel if people quit buying his stuff. Yeah. You know, everybody else can pretty well turn heel except for him. Right, exactly. I don't know if you've seen any of, of his work, but I think probably the one and, and only person in wrestling right now that could really pull off being a heel that seems to really enjoy being a heel is Seth Rollins. Yeah, and the kid's talented. You know, I've, yeah. watched, I've watched him a little bit. Uh, I, I don't really keep up with what goes on in wrestling these days. You know, I still right. talk to, to some of the guys. You know, there's, um, you know, like the guy that was – PJ Black that was Justin Gabriel with WWE. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I've known I've known PJ since he was probably seven years old because his dad was the promoter in South Africa. Okay. That's right. So, you know, I I've known him since he was a little kid. Yeah. And he's talented. You know, and I watched I watched it a lot more when he was working just to see, you know, his matches and a lot of times we would talk and he would ask me what I thought of it and things like that. But you know, once once he left, I, I don't think I've even watched the WWE show since. Yeah, not missing a whole lot. <laughs> no, from what I what I hear and I read, you know, people still contact me and tell me things, and you know, uh, 
my daughter and her husband, you know, are big wrestling fans. So every once in a while, my daughter will say, hey, you know, did you see what happened on Raw? And I'm like, no. And then she kind of explains it to me. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I find myself enjoying NXT, their developmental, way more than, you know, Raw. That's what I've heard and I've seen on Facebook, you know, is that a lot of people are really, really getting into the to the NXT stuff much more than what they are the WWE product. Yeah, you know, Triple H is running it. And the one thing I've heard is that Triple H is apparently trying to bring it back to how it used to be. Like, he's not scripting their promos. He's just giving them bullet points and telling them to get out there and kind of trying to turn the business back around, it seems like. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it needs to be something like that. Yeah. You know, to go back to what was successful. I mean, you look at their numbers, and I mean, WWE and stuff is not doing worth a damn. No, especially not what they were doing, you know, during the Monday Night Wars and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, to the wars and stuff and what, you know, Crockett used to do, you know, when he still had WCW, you know, yeah. what, you know, as a regional ter- territory and stuff. I mean, Crockett was just amazing. I mean, that was where I started, but I mean, there were, um, you know, at that time, you know, it was the horsemen, it was. Uh, before Sting had even come in when I started. So, I mean, it was still, you know, Dusty and, uh, you know, I was training with Murdoch and, and the Funks. Jeez. And so, you know, I was traveling with Dick to a lot of shows. And, you know, but that was, you know, you had Rock and Roll Express. You had Midnight Express, Barry Wyndham. I mean, some talented, talented guys. You know, and I used to travel with Murdoch and Ivan Koloff all the time. Oh, man. So, I mean, just sitting there listening to their stories every night, I mean, that was, you know, that it was much better to go to that than it was to watch what was going on in the show, just <laughs> listen to them tell stories. Well, that must have been better than any training you could pay for nowadays. Oh. Well, you know, it's, that's the funny thing, too, is stuff about the kids today. I mean, one of the last indie shows that I did in the States, you know, I had gone in and, you know, we always were taught stuff breaking in. So if you go in and shake hands with everybody when you walk in the dressing room. Sure. And so I had done that and I was just, you know, sitting over and in my little corner and stuff, you know, trying to get my makeup on and everything else. And I mean, you know, I noticed how many of these kids um, didn't even come over and say hello to me. And I thought, boy, things have changed just so much. Yeah. I mean, you'd have gotten your ass kicked when I was when I was breaking in. If you didn't walk in and shake hands with everybody, I mean, that was just you know a sign of respect. It didn't matter who it was on the card, you know, whether it was the opening match guys and stuff or the main eventers. You walked in, and shook hands with everybody, and you know, I was working in a in a six man tag that night, I think. And one of the guys from the other side, from the other team and stuff, came over and started telling me what I was going to be doing in the match. <laughs> and I'm just like, wait a minute, <laughs> let me get this straight. Out of the six of us here, I've got more ring time and stuff than the five of y'all combined. And you're trying to tell me what I need to be doing to get over and my what spots I need to be doing. <laughs> and it's just Jeez. like you know, it just shows you how much farther the the business has changed because I mean, is, you know, whoever was the most experienced was the one who had the say and what was going on in the matches when I was breaking in. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and your heel called your match. Right. And it's just not like that anymore. It's just changed so much and there's, there's no psychology in anything. It's all about how many high spots they can get in, in a 10 minute match. 
Yeah, it's like Stone Cold always says. We'll go out there. I'll call it in the ring. We'll both get our shit in and go home. Yeah. You know, I had a promoter come up to me one time and said, you know, this guy's afraid to work with you because <laughs> you're so big. And I'm like, why? If I could have gotten in the ring with a guy that had been in the business and stuff for more than 20 years, I was looking so forward to it because I knew it was going to be a learning experience for me. There's nothing to be afraid of. You just hoped that you could keep up with them. Right. If you've been in the ring for 20 years and you haven't hurt anybody, I think it's a pretty good track record. Yeah. Especially when you're my size. I mean, I'm, you know, seven foot 370. Right. You could easily hurt someone. You know, so, I mean, it was it was always just funny when you would get the kids that would be nervous to, to work with me instead of just because of my size. Yeah. It's like, kid, don't worry about it. We'll get through this. I promise you. <laughs> just let me choke slam you a couple times. Yeah. Uh, so are, you're a legit seven foot. You're not like these guys that build themselves as seven foot, right? Right. I'm a legit. Well, I was actually, I'm probably a little bit shorter now and stuff because I've had, you know, a lot of work done on my spine. Oh. Um, you know, I was a half inch over seven foot. Jeez. So, I mean, I was a legitimate seven footer. And, and you know, um, you know, when I wrestled Andre and stuff, you know, Andre was probably a half inch taller than me. I mean, Andre wasn't seven four, seven five like they pushed him. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I was right there with Andre and with Big Show. And so, you know, I've met Paul a couple of times. And, I mean, it's, you know, we're all pretty well eye to eye. Yeah, I bet. When did you work with Andre? Is that towards the end of his career? Or? Uh, yeah, it was toward the end of his career, probably a couple of years before he died. Oh, okay. So he probably wasn't he moving was, too well. Yeah, he wasn't moving. I was working in a tag match with uh, Andre and Giant Baba. Okay. That's a lot of weight in there. And. Oh, you know, and my partner and stuff was 6'10 and 320. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, all of us were right there around that seven-foot mark. Yeah. You know, it had to probably be one of the tallest tag team matches in history, I would think. I imagine it would be. You know, because, um, but, of course, you know, by that time and stuff, you know, Baba was toward his, before he, you know, he died shortly after Andre, I think. Yeah. Or before. I mean, I, I know that they were right around the same time. And, you know, both of them and stuff weren't really moving real well. And I would have loved to have been able to work with those guys when I was really green. So, I mean, I would have loved to have been more wrestled against them when I was more experienced and when they were younger. Yeah. Because, oh, what a learning experience that could have been. You know, but we had, uh, you know, we didn't do anything just crazy. It was just pretty well a, a basic match. And, you know, Andre was was hurting so bad in his back and his hips, you know, when he uh, uh, did the finish on me, he just dropped an elbow on me, but he had to grab the top rope and lean till he was almost on top of me before he let go. Oh, geez. You know, so he just wasn't really moving very well. But, I mean, it was a great honor being in the ring with him. I mean, of you know, I've got to work with, with some big-name guys along the way, and, you know, wrestling Andre was just has to be the pinnacle. Yeah. Did you ever get to go party with him? Uh, no, I was in a hotel. You know, I was in an airport with him. Okay. We had a layover one time in um, in Tokyo. I think we were flying to Sapporo. And, I mean, Andre, I think he did like 10 double Camparis and soda in like <laughs> 30 or 40 minutes. I'm sure. You know, he, was just, he was just knocking them back like there was no, you know, like it was water. Didn't they say he'd do like 60 beers in a in a sitting or something oh, like that? Oh, you would, you would watch them. You know, the young guys and stuff loading up cases of beer and wine and stuff on the bus he was riding on. 
Oh, and I mean, they're loading on cases and they weren't doing that on our bus. <laughs> you know, so you knew, you knew it was for Andre. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Um, speaking of seven feet, I was asking my girlfriend who is not a wrestling fan at all, though she's starting to get into the diva stuff. Apparently, uh, I was asking her if she had any questions for you. And the one question she had, because you're seven feet, she want to know how big your shoes are, how big your feet 16s. are. 16s. That's funny because I wear a 16. Yeah, it, it's, it really is. For as big as I am, my shoes and stuff don't match. I right. mean, Andre was pretty well the same size as me. I think Andre wore a 23 or 24. Yeah, and Shaq wears a 22. Yeah, I mean, I, I only wear a 16. Interesting. And for me, my 16 is huge because I'm only six feet tall. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we both look funny with our 16s. <laughs> Uh, you it's kind of, not as noticeable on me as it is with you. That's probably true. People look down. You know, I, I like to wakeboard and water ski a lot, and they always give me shit. Oh, you must not need to buy any skis, do you? Yes, I yeah. do. Shut up. I've heard that one before. Yeah, so. I bet. Uh, you, know, you talk about breaking in. You're breaking in with guys like Dick Murdoch and, and all these you know classic wrestlers, Dusty, the Four Horsemen. How did you get started? How did you first break in? Um, you know, I wanted to be a wrestler from the time I was a kid. And I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. Okay. And that was back, you know, during the Funk's heyday of yeah. you know, running the Amarillo Territory. So I went to school with all of Dory Funk Jr.'s kids. Oh, geez. So, you know, I got to know Dory and Terry, and my dad was Dory's oldest son's football coach. Oh, man. So. That's awesome. Um, and then Terry's daughter was friends with the girls next that lived next door to me. So I would see Terry when he'd come over and pick up. Stacy. Mm -hmm. And so I would talk to Terry and then I would run, you know, they call me up in the stands and tell me something to go down and tell Dory's son. And, you know, so I could <laughs> play messenger boy doing that. Terry was just crazy. But, you know, Terry, Terry would come over to the house and visit because, uh, you know, and Dory knew my dad from high school. Mm -hmm. You know, I think dad, Dory was a couple of years older than my dad. So, I mean, they were trying to, when he was at West Texas State, they were trying to recruit my dad out of high school. Uh oh. So he knew who my dad was from that. And so I had talked to him right before I graduated high school about wanting to be a wrestler. And the first thing that, that both of them told me was, if you want to be a wrestler, kid, go to school, get a degree, and then call us. So I'd gone to school and played basketball, uh, got my degree. I went to Europe to play professional ball and had contract problems and came home. They didn't really live up to what they promised me when I left the States. And when I got there, it was something completely different. You must have been a point guard. So right? I came home. Yeah, I was just, and I was just, <laughs> you know, just kind of burned me out of basketball. I've been playing since I was six years old. Yeah. Okay. You know, so for 18 years, I'd been playing competitive basketball. So I was just, you know, really tired and burned out from it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always had the worst luck. I've never been to one of these people and stuff that was always in the right place in the wrong time. I was always the other way around. I was <laughs> in the wrong place at the right time. You know, it just, you know, I always ended up with the worst coaches possible and stuff. Some of the biggest idiots I think that ever <laughs> became a coach. I always, for some reason, I always ended up on their teams. The Mike D'Antoni's of Little basketball. League. Yeah, starting from Little League Baseball on. And uh, and I had a really bad coach in, in Europe. And just it, it just really just took me took the love of the game out of me. And so I, when I came home, I was trying to get a job and couldn't find one. You know, and I mean, I've got this brand new shiny diploma and i you know they just at that time in the mid 80s and stuff you know the 
the employment opportunities and stuff were really limited at the time. So they just weren't hiring a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I called um, Dory and I found his number and I, I had their numbers written down. So Dory's was gone. I called Terry. Terry gave me Dory's number. So I called Dory. And as we were talking, you know, he got, oh, you know, I want to touch base with your dad stuff. You know, what's his number? So I gave my dad's number. And he said, well, he said, listen, I got to go and stuff. Give me a call tomorrow. So I did. Well, Dory was getting my number, my dad's number from me so he could call my dad to find out whether I had a college degree or not. No. <laughs> and I had no idea this was going on behind the scenes. And so when I called Dory, he's like, come on out to Charlotte and, you know, I'll, uh, you know, I'll train you and stuff when you come out. So I came to, to Charlotte and started training with Dory out at Nelson Royals place. Jeez. So I got to train with Nelson and a lot of the guys and stuff, which at that time, Johnny Ace was one of the guys that was just coming in. He was just, he was going in doing jobs and stuff for, uh, for WCW. Okay. Because you know, Nelson was supplying a lot of his younger guys were going in, you know, as these, I think they call them development wrestlers now, or they've got a politically correct name. Yeah, the jobbers. <laughs> well, yeah, the jobbers got a politically <laughs> correct name now. Yeah. That's what everybody was called and stuff that went into enhancement talent. That's the word I'm looking, the right, term enhancement. I'm looking for. And uh, so Johnny Ace was one of those guys. So I'd work, I'd work out with Johnny some, his brother Mark. Um, you know, and every once in a while, one of the, the bigger name people like Animal would come in to work with his brothers. And, nice. you know, Todd Champion was there. And some of those guys and stuff back in the, you know, the mid-80s. So I got to work out with those guys along with working with Dory. And, you know, Nelson was just like, you know, anytime you want to come and Dory can't make it, just come on. And just get in there and work out with my guys. And so I did that. And then, and, you know, Murdoch was also there tagging with Ivan at the time. And so Dick started going up there and working out with me and doing a lot of my training because Dory moved to Florida. So I started training with Dick all the time. That's amazing. And so we did, yeah, it was, like I said, the, if you look at the two guys and stuff that trained me and stuff, they have to be considered two of the best wrestlers in the history of wrestling. Yeah, for sure. You know, Dory at the time and stuff was, you know, had been a four and a half year world champion back when being a world champion meant a whole lot more than what it did by the mid eight, mid to late eighties. Right. Yeah. It's when you traveled around with the belt and oh, it's when you traveled territory around the territory and the territories all got together to decide who was going to be the champion. Right. It wasn't an office decision. It was a, you know, convention of getting together and deciding who's going to be this guy. And I mean, for Dory to do it for four and a half years was something else because it, it was unheard of at the time. You know, and then Murdoch, Murdoch could do anything he wanted to do. You know, he could technical wrestle with you, he could brawl with you, he could do comedy, <laughs> you know. And, you know, I've listened to some people say stuff that that was probably the one thing that kept Murdoch from being a world champion was the fact and stuff that Dick liked to do comedy stuff. Yeah. You know, so sometimes it's just out of the blue, we would do a Three Stooges spot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Block the eye poke? Oh, yeah. And, you know, you would hit him and stuff, and he would drop and roll around, spin around on his shoulder and stuff and get up, and you'd hit him and he'd spin the other direction. <laughs> you know, he would do crazy stuff like that, and that was probably what 
you know, they I don't think they really wanted to put a belt on somebody they didn't know what he was going to do. Yeah. From I, night to night. But I mean Dick was amazing and taught me so much. Yeah, I can see that especially at that point in the business they probably were a little afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah, I've listened to you know, some of the podcast interviews. I think Dusty said that in one of his and um there was somebody else's I listened to. I think maybe DiBiase or somebody or Harley Race. I think it was Harley Race I was listening to an interview he did. It said the same thing and stuff is that Dick would just do some crazy stuff and prevented him from being world champion. <laughs> but he always draw money wherever he went. Right. And I mean, there was nobody even to this day that could throw a punch like Murdoch. His punch was the best punch I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, those are realistic punches. Yeah. I mean, was, was he connected? Was that a potato or was that? No. Really? He would tap you right on the tip of your nose and stuff. And that'd be all you'd feel. <laughs> And That's I mean, insane. it was it was amazing and stuff. And I mean, I tried to throw punches like Murdoch, and I always thought mine were fairly good, but there were nothing like Dick's. I mean, Dick's was just his was just amazing. It didn't matter who who you put up against him; nobody threw a more realistic punch than Murdoch. That's awesome. Being trained by all these you know these huge names, the Funks, Dick Murdoch, all these guys. Um, what was like the first you know couple days of training? Like, what was that first bump like? <laughs> Dory got me in the ring. And, you know, for the setting, this this is like February in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And Nelson Royal's place was outside of, in an old barn. So it was it was cold as could be in that thing. So, you know, of course, we're all in, you know, I'm training in sweats and T-shirt and everything every day. Yeah. But we get on there. Dory says, okay, get down on your hands and knees. So I do. And I've got no amateur wrestling background whatsoever. I was a basketball player. Dory gets down, hooks me up, says, okay, get away from me. And Dory rode me for about a minute and a half, and I couldn't get away. (laughs) Didn't matter what direction I turned or anything else, Dory just rode me. And I was so blown up, I couldn't see straight by the end of it. And he said, okay, that's called a shoot. Now I'm going to teach you how to work. (laughs) And I didn't, I didn't have to go through all the crazy things I hear, the 500 push-ups and set-ups and squats and right. running 500 laps around the ring and stuff. Dory just taught me how to work. And the first time he threw that uppercut forearm, he backed me in a corner and kind of held my head in for it uh-huh. and hit me with that thing and hit me so hard I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> he said, now if I ever throw one, you'll remember to turn your head. Yes, sir. I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> and I was so black and blue because Dory was always one of these guys and stuff. The lockup was everything, you know, so he be- always believed that the lockups were supposed to be snug and they were supposed to pop. And so by the end of a couple of days of doing this for three or four hours a day, you know, I was so bruised up from Dory just locking up with me. Yeah, I don't remember who it was, but I was just into a podcast where they said if if they see the first lockup is a bad lockup, they won't watch the match. Because that's a yeah, sign of how good a wrestler you are. Yeah, it was always, you watch, especially today and stuff, you see it and everything looks so limp. Yeah. You know, I always used to talk about guys locking up like a wet noodle. And that was kind of, you know, you see so much of that now. Some of these guys are just lightly locking up. You know, and I mean, Dory was one of those and stuff. Start off tight and loosen up. Yeah, it's much better. And that was, 
and that was how I was and stuff with him. And that was the way he trained me. And I mean, it was, you know, my body had never gone through this kind of stuff. So running the ropes and, and things like this, you know, and I'm hitting these ropes hard and stuff like that. And, you know, my ribs are bruised. My thighs are bru- Hips are bruised. And so, you know, I've got so many bruises on me. It was just ridiculous. Well, you got a lot more weight hitting those ropes, too. You're such a big guy. Well, I wasn't that big back then. you got to remember, I just got through playing professional basketball. So I was only about probably 265, 270. Oh, okay. You know, so, I mean, I looked like a basketball player. Yeah. You know, and I, I remember, you know, Dory taking me up to the Crockett offices and, you know, introducing me to Dusty, and Dusty's just like, you know, I see this cowboy gimmick. <laughs> You're going to be like Tex McKenzie, baby. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know who Tex McKenzie is, but okay. I remember getting in the car with Dory. I'm like, who is Tex McKenzie? <laughs> and, you know, but that was, so, I mean, and he was, you know, a real tall, lanky guy, did a cowboy gimmick, carried saddlebags into the ring. Okay. You know, and he was just like, I want you to get a cowboy hat and a frenzy jacket like Dory used to wear. The cowboy boots like I've got. So I'm ordering all this stuff, like I was told. So that was, so yeah, it was it was a definitely an adjustment. You know, getting used to doing, you know, going from playing basketball to something that had so much contact in it. Yeah, and I love that whenever anybody talks about dusty telling them something you can't not do it without the dusty impression no you can't it's (laughs) like i said i mean some people like dusty some people dislike dusty some people actually love dusty but you can't knock the fact of what he did for the business and how many guys got their start under dusty's tutelage yeah and And how many guys in wwe now he worked with on their gimmicks on their promos because there was never a better promo guy in the business i mean dusty sure didn't have a body well, that's for sure. But there was nobody could out-talk Dusty Rhodes. No. So you talk about coming up with all these guys with, with the Dusties, with Dick Murdoch, with the Four Horsemen, and you said you got to ride with Dick Murdoch. Do you have any you know crazy stories from the road just riding along? You know, there weren't really the – we never did anything stupid. But I got to listen to all the crazy stuff. You know, I got to listen to stories and stuff of uh, – you know, Dick and Dusty, when they were doing the Outlaws gimmick back in, the, like, the 60s. You know, and they used to do some crazy stuff. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's, you know, same thing with Terry Funk. You know, sitting down talking to Terry and stuff. Some of the, the crazy things that they used to get by with doing, especially in the Amarillo Territory, because they were gods there. They could do no wrong. Yeah. And I mean, so they were, you know, would do some of the craziest stuff. You list all the barroom fights and fights over women and crazy things that they did on the road. And, yeah, it was it was just such an educational thing to sit and listen. And one of the things I remember and stuff, I think it was like the first or second night that I rode with, with Dick and Ivan. And I can't remember the guy that was doing the Russian gimmick with Ivan. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it was after Nikita had turned babyface. Okay. And they had brought in a great big guy and stuff that was working as a Russian. And, you know, all of us riding in the car together and just, you know, Ivan told me and stuff. He he gave me his number, which just shocked me at the time. And he's like, if you're watching, he said, watch the show every week. And he said, if you have any questions about why something's being done, how something's being done, 
he said, pick up the phone and call me and I'll walk you through it. Wow. And I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world for him offering me, you know, his, you know, wisdom to the business. You know, and there he was, the name he had been for years. Yeah, that's an you know, and I remember being a kid watching Georgia Championship when it was like him and Ole against Dusty all the time. Yeah. You know, I just thought, oh, you know, this guy's vicious. And it was, it was always, it was always kind of a funny thing remembering how I used to see it as a wrestling fan and now getting to be around these guys. And it's like, these guys are not what I thought of them being when I was a kid. I mean, that's great. You, you essentially had the phone number to an encyclopedia of wrestling. Yeah, it, it really was. And I mean, you know, Ivan and I finally got a chance to wrestle Ivan when I was in Puerto Rico back, you know, probably four or five years later. And we just had such a good time in the ring. And we didn't, we were only supposed to go, I think, 12 minutes or something like that on a 30 minute time limit. Yeah. And the referee and stuff finally leans in. He said, Are you guys going home? <laughs> There's only a minute left in the match. <laughs> and it was just so much fun that we just, time just flew. Whoops. And I mean, it was just so fun working with Ivan. I'm just going where he tells me to go, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was great with that. And, you know, as, as being a kid, because of, you know, Dory always left me two tickets to the wrestling matches from the time I was probably 14 years old on. Oh, nice. Whether I used them or not. And even after the Funks didn't have the territory, and I think it was Jerry Kozak had the ter- territory later and stuff. I had my two tickets still were standing as, you know, as a respect thing to Dory. So I got to know a lot of the guys and stuff. So I wasn't completely caught off guard and stuff by the personalities being different in person than what they were on TV. Yeah. You know, I got to know the Von Erichs fairly well. Uh, my son, David, is named after David Von Erich. Oh, really? But I got to be, Yeah. And I get to be real good friends with David and with Carrie and Sweet Brown Sugar and some of those guys in the, um, you know, the time. And I remember one of the craziest things I remember in high school. Now, it, I'm 6'10", but I wasn't 200 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> but I was given David and Carrie a ride. And I've got this little Subaru wagon. Nice. And I guess somebody didn't pick Brody up. So he rides with us. So here's this little Subaru wagon with <laughs> me, David Von Erich, Carrie Von Erich, and Bruiser Brody in it. Jeez. I don't know how the car survived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, that was a lot of me to carry in it. Those shocks are screaming. Oh, you know, but I mean, I got to know a lot of the guys from world class because of that. And I got to know the Freebirds, you know, over time. I mean, it was, it was always great for me to be able to wrestle some of the guys that I either watched as, as a kid or the ones I got to know as a kid. Yeah. You know, like working with Terry Gordy and stuff for the first time in Japan. You know, it was great because Terry would talk to me, you know, would always say hello to me if he saw me at the matches because I'd always go back and try to talk to the wrestlers. Right. And so, you know, Terry was, it was always, it was real funny the first time that I worked with Terry and he was just like, I remember you. <laughs> yeah. I was the big kid in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you talk about uh, Puerto Rico and, and they never turned you heel. That's pretty rare for Americans, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if too many, in, you know, unless you came in as a Dusty Rhodes or something that was just such an established baby face. 
you know, but for somebody that was green and new like I was and stuff, for them not to turn me was was absolutely amazing. And I mean the the whole premise of me getting there was kind of weird and it all changed like overnight. Mm-hmm. Because originally stuff I was working this show for Bill Ash, I think, in Oklahoma or Arkansas. Okay. And he hit, called me and stuff. He said, I've got this big guy I want to bring in. Can you come in and work with him so we can have this Battle of the Giants thing? And Bill had gotten to know me because I used to travel with Lord Littlebrook and a lot of the midgets. So that's a, <laughs> different story. That's a story within itself. That must have been a sight. Oh, God. So I go work this show. Well, my The guy I was working against worked as Nitro, Sky, I think Skywalker Nitron or just Nitron for WCW, and he was woman's bodyguard Okay. Uh, for Doom. When it was the Ron Simmons and Butch Reed thing, mm-hmm. and now Daryl's doing making a killing doing movies because he was, you know, he was Sabretooth in the first X Man movie. He was Ajax and Troy. He did the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. <laughs> you know, so he's doing a lot better in Hollywood than what he did in wrestling. Mm-hmm. But after the match, Bill pulled us back in the dressing room. He says, "Have you guys ever thought?" about forming a tag team. And, you know, of course, we just met each other, so it wasn't even a, a thought. Right. He said, y'all need to figure out how to do a tag team together. And then called Dory, because he said, you're trained by Dory. Dory's the one that's booking all the talent for Japan. Well, I didn't know. And so he said, y'all need to form a tag team and stuff and go to Japan. Y'all would be great in Japan. Yeah. So... You know, we looked at our gimmicks, and there he was kind of wearing, kind of doing a, the road warrior type gimmick and stuff with the makeup and the, the long black pants. And and I was doing a cowboy gimmick at the time. Well, the cowboy gimmick we knew was dead. Yeah. And at that time, the makeup was hot. You know, because you, you only really had the road warriors at that time. I think um, Ultimate Warrior was working as Dingo Warrior in Dallas. Oh, that's right. Um. You had Sting, and I think he just left. Oh no, I take it back. Him and Sting were doing the Blade Runner thing in Oklahoma at the time. Oh, okay. For Watts, and so it was. You know, it wasn't oversaturated with guys in makeup. Yeah, it wasn't overdone yet. So you know, we're like, okay, well, let's. I'll switch my stuff over and do your gimmick. So we really still didn't have a name for ourselves, and so. He wanted to be called Rage, so I'm like, okay, I'll do Blade. <laughs> and so I called Dory. Dory wanted us to go to Japan, but he said, y'all have got to get some experience. So um, Dory put me in touch with Carlos. He called Carlos and then told me to call Carlos. So I called Carlos. And so the angle was that I was supposed to go into Puerto Rico and work with um, Malumba, which was he was working in Japan with Abby as a tag team partner, is Kamala number two. Okay. Um, his name is Ben Peacock. So they brought me in. I did a deal where I beat him my first night in to get me over. And the next week he quit because the angle was the stuff I was supposed to beat him and have broken his jaw, I think. And then Abby was going to come in and jump me 
And then my partner was going to come in, and then we are going to have this big tag team thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we get there. Malumba quits after that first weekend. Whoops. Um, so they didn't really know what to do with me yet. And then so they bring Abby in to work with me. And, you know, I've always been very thankful for Abdullah because, I mean, Abby has done so much for me. Really? You know, he he really made me what I was in Puerto Rico because I was probably one of the few people to ever work with Abby and not Juice. Wow, because when you think of Abby, all you think about is the fork. Yeah. Yeah, actually, <laughs> stuff. I mean, we're, you know, and I mean, I was all in awe because, I mean, I remember watching Abby, you know, as a kid. And so when we're working and stuff, you know, the referee's like, we're in this giant baseball stadium. And, uh, so the referee tells me to go get Abby's. He's coming out of the dugout. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hitting on Abby and knocking him around the baseball field. And, you know, he has me grab this stick and how he saw the thing. I have no idea. Abby always had <laughs> the most amazing vision for finding a gimmick to use in a match. I guess it's a good talent, you know? And I mean, so I've got this stick and I mean, I'm, jabbing him in the head with this thing and we finally get it into the ring and we're doing everything. Abby cuts me off. He goes for the fork, you know, and so I'm, I'm getting ready and he's like, block it. Wow. Okay. So I and take it away from me. So I block it. I take it away and I use the fork on him. Oh, geez. And then he finally ends up rolling out of the ring and, and going back to the dugout. And one of the guys and stuff that was in our dressing room and stuff, he said, do you realize what a big thing that is that you didn't bleed during a big show working with Abby? And I'm like, no, because I was still so green at the time. I yeah. had a clue. And then the magnitude of what he had done for me. And I mean, the next week, starting at TV and the shows that we were doing and stuff, all of a sudden I was over. And, and not just to not juice, but I mean, to, for him to tell you to block the fork must sound silly to people who don't know anything about Abby or wrestling in general. But to block that fork must have been, you know, a huge oh. sign of respect. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and I'm, you know, I think Abby was trying to build me because, you know, this was after Brody had been killed in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. You know, so, I mean, and Abby still had a piece of the office, which, you know, I didn't really know that at the time, but, you know, Abby had a part of that office at one time. So I think he was trying to build me up, hoping to get some little thing like he and Brody had going for such a long time. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget. Saw Abby versus uh, who I think it was Axel Rotten out here in Southern California. When I was a teenager, he got that fork out and just, just annihilated Axel Rotten's forehead to the point where they, after the the match was over, I think it took about four people to hold the towel on Axel Rotten's head because every time he tried to stand up, it would actually squirt outwards. The blood was squirting outwards. Yeah. It wasn't just running down his face. They had to get the towel on his head in order for him to be able to stand up. It was insane. Yeah, I've, I've seen that before. It's, it's never happened to me because I was always careful about how I did those things. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I've seen that happen with Dustin Rhodes, as a matter of fact, when I was working in Memphis. Oh, really? For Lawler and stuff. Uh, I think he was wrestling Black Bart and whoever Bart, Dirty White Boy. Okay. And they had done, and 
Dustin had hit it real deep and caught that artery in the middle of his forehead, and, I mean, it was just spraying. Ugh. That's nasty stuff. And he was ready to go. You know, Bart told me and stuff. He was ready to go home. Bart's like, oh, no, we're working this. <laughs> and, I mean, there was blood everywhere. I bet. So, but, yeah, so, so I mean, Abby really made me in Puerto Rico. That, that, not, that one specific match is what kind of got me over the – the opening middle part of the card to where I could start working semi-main events or tag with Carlos or Invader and, and, and TNT or Sabio Vega. And, and it, and it means something and stuff for me to, to work with them. Yeah. To, the, to those of you who are listening that, that don't really know a lot about wrestling and behind the scenes and wrestling, I mean, to have someone huge like that, not only put you over, which, you know, give you the win, but to, to have them, you know, let, let you block their big move to put it in layman's terms, is, is a big sign of respect, and it helps the other person get over and become more famous. It's just a, it's how you came up in the business. Oh, yeah. It's like kicking out of a finish instead of blocking the fork. Right, yeah. I mean, could you imagine some, some green guy coming in and kicking out of the Stone Cold Stunner? Like, that would never happen. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, you talk about Puerto Rico. Luckily, probably for your safety, you stayed a face the entire time. Did you ever have any run-ins as a heel where people were trying to attack you? You know, there's a lot of stories of people oh, getting yeah. stabbed and stuff. I've been stabbed five times by spectators. Oh, jeez. Um, the first night, the first time it happened to me was in Mexico City. Of course. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about the, you know, the big professional wrestling arenas and stuff around the world. But uh, Cuatro de Caminos, the big bullfighting ring in Mexico City. Okay. That uh, Senior Minus used to run. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working, they brought just brought me in my very first time, and I was in a world title match with Kinect. Now, Kinect was, him and Mil Moscaris are like the two gods in Santo, were probably the, the gods of Mexico. Yeah. And Connect would always work against the big American guys, the big foreigners that Minus would bring in. You know, me, Vader, uh, Bigelow, Yokozuna. You know, so Connect would always work against us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're that building sold out at capacity at like twenty six, twenty seven thousand. And Owen Hart was my second that night for the title match because they always had brought a second. Okay. You know, to kind of like as a manager and stuff for who, for the opponents in the title match. Oh, okay. And so everything in Mexico is two out of three falls. So I beat Connect, Connect beat me. Third fall, we do, we bump the ref, and Owen Hart comes in, and Owen and I do a spike pile driver on Connect. Now, the pile driver is illegal in Mexico. Oh, okay. So that got heat doing a pile driver, period. But for Owen to get up on the top rope and spike him with me. And then I cover him and stuff, and the ref uh, gives me the one, two, three. And, I mean, that place went nuts. <laughs> and it to the point that it scared the ref to where he instantly reversed the decision. Oh, that wasn't part of the plan? And disqualified me and stuff and gave the match to connect. So... Now, this is a big bullfighting arena, so it's got dirt and everything. Is It's on top of dirt. Yeah. Well, the people and stuff who've walked in and out of this thing all throughout the night, are, the steps are all covered in dirt and sand. Sure. 
now the people and stuff are throwing beers. They're throwing those big peso coins. The one peso coin and stuff was bigger than our silver dollars and was worth absolutely nothing. <laughs> so they didn't care about throwing those things at you. Yeah. So Owen and I had both grabbed chairs, and we had to go up and fight our way through this crowd up these, stem, these steps. They were metal steps, but they were slick from now from all the dirt and the beer. Oh, geez. So you couldn't go real fast. So as we're going through there, somewhere in the crowd, and I mean, I didn't even see the guy do it. The guy hit me with a knife or whatever he cut me with and gave me like almost like a Zorro mark. I mean, he got me forward and back. <laughs> Holy crap. And, and I got back to the dressing room when we finally, you have to go up the top of these steps and then down some steps and then go under the steps in the bullfighting arena uh-huh. so now you got all those people up above you that are dumping stuff on top of you jeez oh, so you're trying to protect yourself from that yeah and i remember getting back there and stuff and i saw all the blood and i said something to to senior minus about they they got me he said yeah he said that was a really great finish <laughs> i'm like no they got me and i showed him my hand and i'm it's like i'm covered and i got blood pouring and so I had to, I'd already done three shows prior to this one. All in that night? That night. I started at like noon. I think I did like a, a 12 o'clock show, a 2 o'clock, a 3 o'clock, and then I was at that one and stuff, which started at like 4.30 or 5. And then I had another show to go do that started <laughs> at 9. It's a long day. And minus like i've got to have you at this other arena just so people can see you and i'm like um okay <laughs> so they packed every the doctors and stuff that were there on duty and stuff packed everything in on um the the cuts yeah and then wrapped me up and then ta- they take me to the next show so all i had to do was stand in the corner was it like so a tag people, match? So the yeah, because everything is a six man tag in Mexico. Oh right, you know unless you're in a title match. Yeah. So you know all I had to basically do was just stay in the corner. You know I, th- I think I came in and punched somebody or clotheslined somebody or something, and then they rushed me straight to the hospital. Finally. And I took sixty stitches internal and external. Holy crap! And of all places and, to get stabbed, Mexico. Yeah. You know, and then I had to get back because I was working in Puerto Rico in two nights. Oh, jeez. I'm at the hospital, and I mean, I always remember this about Owen, is he had gotten my hotel room key because I had like a 3 o'clock in the morning flight from Mexico City back to San Juan. Uh-huh. And Owen had gone in and packed up all of my stuff and put a clean set of clothes on my bed and left me a note <laughs> telling me and stuff that it, it was great working with you. I hope you're okay. I heard what happened. You know, if you ever need anything, here's my number. Call me. Oh, nice. You know, so I always remember that about Owen because everybody always remembers Owen for all the ribs and right some of the crazy stuff he used to do. And he, he was just so great to me, you know, for having done that. Yeah. And so, you know, I always remember that. And it was really a sad thing and stuff when Owen passed. But that was the first time that I had gotten stabbed um, was in Mexico City. The second one was in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Uh, a lady tried to cut me with a straight razor. Jeez. Oh, 
up on the barriers. Uh, and I, I saw her. I saw the the flash as it was coming, so I just pulled back enough to where it didn't get me too bad. Yeah. And then I got stabbed uh, once in Cape Town, South Africa, in the hand, because that was all I could think of when the guy came at me with a knife was to get my hand up. Right. So the guy stabbed me in the meat of the web and stuff between oh. my thumb and my thumb. It just hurts to think about. Well, thankfully, I was able to grab a, chair, a top of the chair, and I clocked him with a chair, so he went down. <laughs> with the chair but nice. you know, I didn't want to stay in that arena very long because it was getting you know there were other idiots out there besides him yeah something like getting dicey and then twice in Durban South Africa I got stabbed jeez and the one the first time I got stabbed there was really a scary event because um, you know Durban is a predominantly Indian city okay and so they brought Gama Singh was like their big star of uh, for India, you know, from for Durban, right? So we were working an angle and stuff set up to where Gama had just finished a match. They fed me for they would run for like three or four weekends in a row, and then they wouldn't do anything for four or six months. So they had fed me somebody for three weeks in a row and stuff to where you know they. I actually took Abby's fort gimmick to South Africa, so I got known for But I had a spike instead of a fort. <laughs> so I was known for the, having that spike. Yeah. So I had done, I, you know, I had spiked everybody, and everybody was bleeding all over the place. And, you know, I was beating everybody in four or five minutes or getting DQ'd because I wouldn't stop and all this other stuff. And so the whole thing, except for the, the third night, because we were setting it up for the last weekend, was to set up me and Gama. And so Gama had finished his match. I'd gone in to challenge him. He had refused to fight me and stuff. So when he turned his back on me, I hit him with one forearm in the back. He went down. I think I got in one kick, and the next thing you know, they're throwing chairs like there is no tomorrow. Oh, jeez. And they're like those, those big plastic chairs. They weren't metal folding chairs like we used, but they were like the black, you know, the outside plastic chairs. Oh, like lawn chairs? Yeah, like lawn chairs. Oh, jeez. And so they started throwing those. And the only thing I could think of to do at one point, because they were throwing so many, was to sit down on a chair and put a chair over my head and just let them fill the ring up. <laughs> and the ring was filled to where you couldn't see me or anything else, and it was piled as high as it could possibly go in 45 seconds. Because the cameraman left at the 45-second mark because he got scared. <laughs> that's where the tape stopped. So in 45 seconds, you were completely, the chairs were up over the ropes as high as you could pack it in. So I'm wedged under all these chairs. I can't move them. Right. And I'm starting to smell smoke. One of the fans evidently was trying to set the ring on fire. Holy crap. And so then I start hearing gunshots. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm under a bunch of plastic, and now people are shooting. Yeah, that's not helpful. And so then everything went dark. And then I could hear the dogs. Oh, jeez. So they brought the riot squad in to chase everybody out of the building. Right. So the guy, there was a guy in the corner who had was helping me pull the chairs off when all of this stuff finally calmed down and, and everything else. Well, I had turned, and I was helping him throw the chairs to the floor. And I turn once I'm about waist deep, so I still really can't move yet. Yeah. As I turn back into him, the guy's got a knife and stabs me in the chest. Oh, jeez. 
and it was right over my heart. And the doctor told me, he said, the only thing that saved you was the fact that his blade was going up and down. And when it hit a rib, it bounced up. He said, if it had been turned sideways, it had gone between your ribs and got your heart. Holy crap. So. That's dicey. Yeah, and then I had them uh, another time in Durban and stuff through a big riot after a cage match and stuff trying to get back to the dressing room. I got stabbed. Somebody cut me in the arm on the way through the crowd. That's probably like the least <laughs> of your worries, sadly. Yeah, it was Durban. And so I had I think I wrestled in Durban 15 times, and I had 11 police escorts out of the building. <laughs> so you must have been a heel all those times. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, they they did not like me anywhere I went. And we even had a night, because one of their big places is a tennis stadium, so they had uh, brick walls at both ends to kind of block the tennis balls if they got by them, so it didn't hit the glass doors. Yeah. But so you have to walk around that wall and under the, you know, so under the stands to get to the dressing room. And Warlord and I had been tagging together that night. And as we go through... Warlord goes in front of me, and as I'm coming through, somebody, they had taken the rims of tires and welded in these metal poles and stuff to use as divisions and stuff for stanchions and stuff on the stands. Okay. Somebody had taken that and dropped it off of the balcony on me. Holy crap. And if I hadn't, I was like a step later than what he expected me to do. Yeah. So it just in from being in Mexico, they used to always throw. They had a real bad tendency to pee in cups and then try to throw them in your face, so it get in your eyes and you get an infection. Oh, jeez! So I was used to keeping my head ducked from working in Mexico for so many years when I was there in Durban. Yeah, and so the I had my head ducked down and stuff, and that tire, that rim of that tire and stuff, just caught the top of my head and just peeled the skin down. Ooh. So, yeah, South Africa could be a real rough place to to work because everybody liked to fight. I, you know, I had guns pointed at me over there. You know, after the first thing with Gama, the office, um, you know, he said he had over 80 death threats that if I showed up, they were going to kill me. Oh, geez. And so we didn't even run the next weekend. We were supposed to run because he was afraid somebody was actually going to try to kill me. That's and I insane. was mad because I'm like, this place is going to be sold out. Let's run. <laughs> And he's like, no, I'm not taking a chance on somebody killing you. That's the wrestler so mentality. That show. <laughs> That's hilarious. See, I've had some fun times with crowds. Apparently. Holy crap. And that is where I'm going to leave it. That's right. You want to hear more about Jeff wrestling overseas, being attacked by fans, the business when it was good, kayfabe. There's a lost art. Sorry, wrestling nerd moment. Anyways, he'll be back with me. On the next episode of I Want to Know. In the meantime, don't forget to check Jeff out on Facebook, facebook.com slash the get back on your feet guy. On Twitter at JWB at large, jeffbearden.com. Hey, tweet him your questions or, or Facebook him some questions if you're a wrestling fan. I'm sure he would love to get those. He loves talking wrestling, especially when it was good. And I love listening to it. I could sit here all day and listen to Jeff tell stories about riding up and down the road. The Duel of the Butcher, Andre the Giant, all these guys. As you can tell, I'm a little excited. And like I said at the top of the show, if you want to see Jeff, if you're going to be in Vegas January 2nd, head on over to the Orleans Casino. He's the keynote speaker for the Unstuck 2016 Happiness Conference. 
It's bound to be a good time. Time for a cheap plug. Don't forget it's Christmas time. If you're going to be doing any shopping on Amazon, head on over to IWantToKnowShow.com. Click on the Amazon banner right there on the homepage. Will not cost you anything extra. One little extra step helps keep this show free for you guys. I really appreciate it. That's the IWantToKnowShow.com homepage for the Amazon banner. Anyways, check out the website. Give the show a follow on Facebook, facebook.com slash I want to know show. On Twitter, it's at I want to know show. Send an email, I want to know pod at gmail.com. And like I said, next episode, more Jeff. So on that note, good night, everybody. <laughs>